Well, I'd like to welcome you, O future teachers of mindfulness meditation. I'm Tara Brock. And I'm Jack Cornfield. Warm greetings to you. To support you in your training, we've created a special podcast series of the best wisdom teachings from previous years of our teacher training. Now, we know that sometimes simply listening and not having to watch a screen is a really good way to open, receive, and learn. The wisdom you'll hear is timeless, so while you may hear references to time, you'll easily connect with the truths that are being shared. May this rich selection of some of our favorite training sessions deepen your understanding of mindfulness and compassion and bring a new dimension to your teaching. We hope you enjoy these special recordings. Many blessings. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program special broadcast. My name is Steve Lassard, and I'll be your host for this session. Today, we are excited to have Jack and Tara joining us. Jack is broadcasting from Marin County, and Tara is joining from Great Falls, Virginia, while I and the Soundshow team are all here in our Boulder studios. Let's get started. Welcome, Jack and Tara. Thanks all so much, Steve. And um, wow, welcome, friends. This is, it's so wonderful to be with you and to kind of feel you all in the field. And we've been hearing uh, from the mentors kind of keep trying to tune into how it's going in a more kind of close up way, hearing how you're kind of rooting in the program and getting familiar. And really, to be honest, how much uh, sincerity and wisdom and good hearts you're bringing to it. So I wanted to start really by honoring your efforts. It's really beautiful. And I wanted to name one of the reports that has been most consistent from the mentors, which is how much material <laughs> is coming your way and how it feels kind of it's that fire hose effect. So um so Jack and I were reflecting together on what did we want to do in this session, and we didn't want to add a lot of something new, and we felt like what would be really engaging and what would most serve is if we focused on what the most basic reminders are. What are the messages we most re repeatedly want to kind of convey to our students, and we felt that that would help you to assimilate um, the massive material you're getting. So that's what we'll do. We'll, um, I'll be emphasizing the reminders that have to do with our inner life. And Jack will take those reminders and really explore how, um, how that affects our way of being with others. And he's got a really beautiful story for you in that. So the reminders, and I'll, I'll just name them and then I'll just dip into each of them. The four reminders are, the first is pausing, that message pause, arrive. The second reminder is to say yes to what's arising, to notice what's going on and say yes to it. The third reminder, in some way, turn towards love, remember love. And the fourth is rest in awareness, stop doing, rest, really rest. Okay, so the first one, pausing and arriving here, I often think about one teacher who was asked to describe the world and his response was lost in thought. And we know it. We know this habit of the mind to be so distracted. Uh, science tells us that we're wandering 
I think it's 47% of the time. And we're caught in this virtual reality instead of being embodied. And a new piece of research I heard was that American adults uh, spend more than 11 hours per day watching or in some way interacting with media. Um, what that means to me is people are bringing their tablets into the bathroom. You know, just let your mind keep going on that one. I mean, 11 hours a day. That's up from uh, nine hours and 32 minutes just four years ago. I received uh, two emails the same day, just uh, last week. And the first one had a picture of a child in room playing a game on his tablet. And he's saying to his mom, who's there, you know, obviously trying to convince him of something different. He's saying, go out and play. What is this, 1962? That was the first one. <laughs> the second one, this guy's walking on the beach and he's talking, he's got his earbuds in. And then finally he says, I'm sorry, I can't barely hear you with this goddamn ocean behind me. So we lift. We live removed, one step removed. And one of the great gifts that we offer teaching is to invite people to pause and really notice the difference between virtual reality and presence. I sometimes share how for myself, um, one of my first experiences of what you might call the sacred was when I was a junior in college and I had gone to a yoga class. And afterwards I was walking home and it was springtime and this inner voice said, stop, just stop. So I paused uh, by a cherry blossom tree. And, you know, I could smell the fragrance of the fruit trees blossoming and feel this gentle breeze on my skin. And my mind was quiet. And I realized that my body and mind were in the same place at the same time. And out of that came a sense that life felt sacred. And I find that when we teach students about pausing, that's the kind of discovery they have. And it also goes with slowing down. As we know, a major part of our daily trance is that we're in some way speeding along, trying to get somewhere else. And the background message is, I don't have enough time. I need to get more done. So we raised three things. So I'll share with you a new term that I was just recently introduced to. And the term is induced meandering. And this comes from Aaron Dunnigan, who's a gardener and a spiritual Presbyterian minister. And the meaning of induced meandering, it applies to rainwater harvesting. That if you encourage rainwater uh, runoff to slow down, in other words, wind its way down a hill rather than rush full speed, it sinks in. It irrigates plants. It refills the groundwater tables below. And, and so it is with our lives and our, our students that you know, to really nourish our aliveness and our heart and our spirit, we need times when we slow down. We need to pause, to let life in, to have time to absorb and inhabit our moments. There's a, there's a mantra um, that I got from a story a woman was telling how her Sister, and I think I had this, you'll find this in the course somewhere. Her sister, when she was pregnant, had been diagnosed with cancer. and She gave birth to a healthy baby girl, but after some months, it was clear that she wasn't going to make it. And During that first year of her baby's life, it was the only time she'd have with her child. She had a mantra, and it was, I have no time to rush. Um, and 
doesn't matter how often I remind myself of that, I'm so grateful each time. So this is the first of the reminders. Pause, arrive. We have no time to rush. Okay, the second, saying yes to what's here, which is really intrinsic to mindfulness, where we're recognizing what's going on with, with, without judging or pushing away or reacting. It's recognizing and allowing. And we don't have to like it. When we teach our students, they don't have to like what's happening. But they're learning to listen and pay attention with, it, with that, that allowing quality and ultimately really cultivating a kind of fearless receptivity. The habit that we're pointing out in teaching so often is that we're constantly evaluating every little thing that happens. It's either pleasant or unpleasant and thinking it's good or bad. And so the habit, because we've got that negativity bias, is to say no to a large part of our experience. Like our, our bodies contract, our mind thinks something's wrong. You'll find, if you haven't already, with students, many times somebody will come with you and say, you know, I've been in a lot of pain and it's getting in the way of my meditation. Or something difficult is going on in my life and it's getting in the way of my meditation. So the basic understanding is whatever we practice gets stronger. And if the habit is to think things are getting in the way of our life, if the habit is to say no, then we get increasingly tight and divided and really at war with life. Um, so habits are our nature and we can create the ones that free us. And one of the big ones is learning to say yes. Um, I remember when I first created for myself a yes meditation when I was at a retreat and I was having what we sometimes call multiple hindrance attacks, like everything was coming up, all this negativity, I was judging everything. So I assigned myself the task of saying yes to whatever came up. And at first it was mechanical. And then it kind of got entertaining. I sort of got playful with it. And then I started noticing I'd say yes. And there was some space around things. Things became spacious. And with that spaciousness, there was a kind of a shift where I was no longer in the story. I was really witnessing more. And then it actually deepened beyond that. Like when yes was really deep. That space was filled with a kind of tenderness. So yes, saying yes to the moment, really, really a deep part of, our, of what we remind people of. A few years after that retreat, I had a, my son was oh, maybe eight or nine, and his, his personality type was he was a naysayer and complained a lot. So I taught him um, a phrase that I, heard about from a story about this Japanese teacher named Sono, a woman, devout woman from hundreds of years ago. And her um, teaching was to say, thank you for everything. I have no complaints whatsoever. So I taught him that. And I'll never forget um, driving him to the dentist and cursing because of the traffic jams on the Washington DC Beltway and him nudging me hard saying, Thank you for everything, mom. No complaints whatsoever. <laughs> so it's a really good reminder and it can be misaimed sometimes. But this is the second one. We, the first is we pause. The second is we say yes to what's here. And there are different ways of saying yes. Basically, it's energetically that we're just opening our body and hearts to the life that's here. I often invite students to mentally whisper yes, explore that, 
And sometimes for me, the words, this belongs, really help. Um, it's like I become the ocean saying yes to the waves as the waves belong. So you can experiment with how you teach about saying yes. The third, turning towards love. Um, you know, all real transformation requires kindness. It's, it's just essential in the practice. And in the moments that we in some way remember or turn towards care, when I say turn towards, it could be asking for to feel cared for or offering ourselves care, whatever it is. But in those moments, there's actually a reduction in limbic activity and in, in the different kinds of unpleasant emotions. And there's more activation in the higher centers of the brain. In fact, there's a lot of research that shows that in some way, remembering love reactivates learning. We can start evolving again. So I really do believe that we love ourselves and each other into healing. And I know even uh, the slightest gesture, and this is true for, for me, I sometimes notice I'm going for a walk and even just the idea of, oh, be kind. Um, and something softens. Again, what we practice grows stronger. So the more we practice turning towards love, the more quick access we have to the actual feelings of soft, tender, open. Um, and it can be in the form, as I mentioned, it can be a message of love, of acceptance, forgiveness, compassion. But in training and when we're teaching our students, it's important to start with whatever resonates. I'll share a, a story. Um, this is from a dear friend of, of Jackson mine, uh, Shauna Shapiro, who's also a fellow teacher. And she describes her pathway to turning towards love. And she was going through a difficult divorce. And she'd wake up each morning with a pit of shame. And she brought it to her meditation teacher. And the teacher suggested, how about saying to yourself, I love you, Shauna, every morning. And so Shauna's response was, no way. <laughs> that just won't work. So uh, the teacher wisely um, downgraded it a little bit. She says, well, how about just put your hand on your heart and say, good morning, Shauna. Well, that was okay. She could do that. So she practiced that really regularly. And a few months later, the teacher told her she was ready for the more advanced practice, which was, and I put my hand on my heart because I find it so useful. Good morning. I love you, Shauna. So the next morning she did it and she didn't feel anything. She didn't feel love, but she kept it up. She didn't have aversion. And as I mentioned, you know, whatever we practice grows stronger. And one morning she put her hand on her heart and she said, I love you, Shauna. Good morning. And she really felt it. She said she felt her grandmother's love and her mother's love and her own love. So what we're doing is we're establishing a pathway of kind attention. So that's the third one. Again, the first is to pause. The second, say yes to what's here. The third is to intentionally turn towards love. The fourth of these rememberings is rest and awareness. And when I teach about awareness, I often... <laughs> I use a metaphor of ocean and waves because it's so, uh, many people can relate to it, that we mostly get identified in a set, as we think of ourselves as a set of waves, familiar waves in the ocean. 
And there's this really deep healing as we realize that we're that oceanness and it's living through these temporary coming and going waves. That's our, our true home. And it's always here. That's this original awareness, uh, this awakeness. There's nowhere to go, nothing to do, it's here. But we, the challenge is, of course, we live with a really deep illusion that we're on the spiritual path and we're actually a set of waves and we're trying to get to our oceanness, but we have to do things and we have to try to improve. And, you know, my meditation's not deep enough. I don't do it enough. So there's this sense of really leaning forward and trying to get somewhere, which of course just creates more waves. So it's very difficult in teaching to invite non-doing. It goes against all our survival strategies and our ego strategies. And most people think in some way, if I stop trying, nothing will happen. I'll get worse. I'll never get there. I'll share with you something I, I shared recently. It's an illustration from the Bible on this kind of theme of how we're always evaluating our spiritual progress, how hard it is just to be. And it's uh, a quote. It says, And the Lord said unto John, Come forth, and you will receive eternal life. But John came fifth, and he won a toaster. I might be embarrassed if I was in person with you. So, <laughs> However that lands, we're on our way. We're trying to win, and it makes it very hard to take in these instructions of not to do. So this resting in awareness begins with the invitation to let life be just as it is. Right in this moment, you just let life be just as it is and begin to notice in that letting be the awareness that's here. And there's a shift as we learn to let be where our attention can move from the, the changing waves to the background of oceanness. There's a shift to sense that background, sensing the openness of it, Sensing that it's knowing, there's a knowing quality. And sensing a natural response of tenderness when there's a resting in that. There's a noticing when there's that shift from the, the waves of sound or sensation or emotion or thoughts. When there's a shift to the background of ocean, there's a sense of the silence that's listening. Or the, the stillness that's aware. So I often think of it that when you're remembering or resting in the ocean of awareness, that's when you're truly able to cherish the waves. Rumi says, you're not a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in this temporary changing drop. I added the temporary changing because he didn't say it. He didn't use those words. But you get the idea. So I thought I'd close this Peace among the four remembrances of pausing, of saying yes, really turning towards remembrance of love and resting in awareness um, into a brief reflection for you right now. So that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, if it's possible to come into stillness, to truly pause. You don't have to do anything or go anywhere or change your posture, but to pause. And, and you might sense no time to rush. We don't have to get to the next thing. 
Noticing the kind of arriving that happens when our intention is to pause. To notice what's happening and with whatever's predominant, saying yes to what's here. It might be a very gentle mental whisper of yes. Maybe you feel vulnerability in your body or area of tension or tightness. Or maybe you feel peace, ease, excitement. It's just whatever's here, yes. Or this belongs. Notice the continued unfolding of experience, letting that yes go deeper, be fuller, truly allowing the light that's here. To deepen that presence with some gesture of kindness, If there is some sense of discomfort, imbalance, suffering, to let that gesture be one of compassion, just to care that there's some suffering. There might be a message that you send to yourself and you might at this point let yourself put your hand on your heart just to deepen that intimacy of the moment some message of kindness. And if what you're feeling is pleasant or beautiful, some appreciation for the aliveness that's here. Feeling the sincerity of that gesture, of that message, the softening. This fourth reminder, just noticing whatever's going on, the sounds, sensations, the tenderness of feelings, letting everything be just as it is. Letting everything be just as it is. And perhaps in that letting be in the background, you can sense that alert inner stillness, that tender presence of a sea of wakefulness and relax back, just to rest in the mystery that's here. Being the awareness.
the poet Dana Falls writes, it only takes a reminder to breathe, a moment to be still. And just like that, something in us settles, softens, makes space for imperfection. The harsh voice of judgment drops to a whisper, and we remember again that life isn't a relay race, that we will all cross the finish line, that waking up to life is what we were born for. As many times as we forget and catch ourselves charging forward without even knowing where we're going, that many times we can make the choice to pause, to breathe and be, and to walk slowly into the mystery. So please take a few full breaths, and as you're ready, opening your eyes. Thank you for your attention and presence, and uh, Jack will now continue onward. Thank you, Tara. Um, I'm just enjoying being in the field of loving awareness that you create as you teach. And as we teach that in some way is a big part of what um, the gift is that we offer to others, that somehow our presence is this reminder of loving awareness that can see and know and understand and hold our human condition, our human incarnation with all its beauty and all its difficulties. So I too, like Tara, I'm very, very happy to be able to speak with you. I've been running into people as I travel around who come up to me and say, Jack, I'm in your teacher training program and in Tara's teacher training program with a tremendous amount of excitement. And I meet them all around the country and in other places, people from Japan and China and, and Europe and so forth come up and say, oh yeah, we're doing this. Um, and almost always there's this sense of, um, shared appreciation. I'm happy to meet you in person to those people. And in them, there's an excitement and a joy and some sense of real connection and dedication as you have, you who are listening, um, having undertaken this training together. So I wanna follow what you've been saying, Tara, and remind people, which again, some of this you'll hear as we go through all the videos and teachings of the training, that the word mindfulness, as it comes from Sanskrit and Pali, the ancient teaching languages, often is a paired word of sati sampajanya, which means it has two parts, mindful attention or presence and mindful response, like breathing in and out. There's an inner and an outer dimension to mindfulness, we become present and with that presence and open heart, then we respond. Now to illustrate this um, and what we learn from it, I wanna read you a story and being um, teachers to be or teachers as you are, pedagogically, I also want to um, emphasize how valuable it is to tell stories. People remember stories, people get stories in their body, they hear it, um, 
the author Barry Lopez wrote a book called Sometimes a Person Needs a Story More Than Food. Um, so use stories. I'll use a few today. Take them, borrow them, um, read, find them. And stories often help people see how the very difficulties that they encounter become the places as they go through them that the heart grows wiser and more full of um, love or compassion. So this story is from a good friend of mine, Terry Dobson, who died a few years ago. He was one of the most celebrated of Western martial artists. Um, and he wrote this story after training in Japan years ago. A turning point came in my life one day on a train in the suburbs of Tokyo in the middle of a drowsy spring afternoon. The old car clanked and rattled over the rails. It was comparatively empty. Various people, old folks shopping, gazing, and I gazed absently at the houses and the dusty hedgerows. Once station, when we arrived, the doors opened and suddenly the quiet afternoon was shattered by a man bellowing at the top of his lungs, yelling violent, obscene curses. Just as the doors closed, the man, still yelling, staggered into our car. He was big, drunk, dirty. He wore laborer's clothing. His front was stiff with dried vomit. His eyes bugged out, his hair crusted with filth. Screaming, he swung at the first person he saw, a woman holding a baby. The blow glanced off her shoulder, sending her spinning into the laps of an elderly couple. It was a miracle the baby was unharmed. The couple jumped up and scrambled toward the other end of the car. They were terrified, and the laborer aimed a kick at the retreating back of the old lady. You old whore, he bellowed, I'll kick your ass. He missed, and the old woman scuttled to safety. This so enraged the drunk that he grabbed the metal pole in the silent car and tried to wrench it out of its stanchion. As the train lurched forward, those seated frozen in fear, I stood up. I was young and big and in pretty good shape, and I'd been putting in hours training in Aikido for the past three years. Every day, I thought I was tough. Trouble was, my martial skill was untested in actual combat. As a student of Aikido, we were not allowed to fight. Our teacher, the founder, taught us each morning that our art was devoted to peace. Aikido, he said, is the art of reconciliation. I listened to his words. I tried hard. I wanted to quit fighting. I even went so far as to cross the street a few times to avoid the punks who would have challenged me outside the pinball parlor in the train station. My forbearance exalted me. I felt both tough and holy, but in my heart of hearts, I was dying to be a hero. I wanted a chance, an absolutely legitimate opportunity whereby I might save the innocent by destroying the guilty. This is it, I said, I got to my feet. This animal is drunk and mean and violent. People are in danger. If I don't do something fast, someone might get hurt. I'm gonna take his ass to the cleaners. See me stand up, the drunk saw a chance to focus his rage. Ah, a foreigner, you need a lesson in Japanese manners. And he punched the metal pole. I held onto the computer, commuter strap overhead and gave him a slow look of disdain. I planned to take him apart. I pursed my lips and blew him a sneering, insolent kiss. It hit him like a slap. All right, 
you're going to get a lesson. He gathered himself for a rush at me. He'd never know what hit him. A split second before he moved, somebody shouted, hey, it was ear splitting. Hey, I remember being hit by the strangely joyous lilting quality of it as though you and a friend had been searching for something diligently and he just found it. I wheeled to my left, the drunk to his right. We both stared down at a little old Japanese man. He must have been well in his 70s, this tiny gentleman sitting there immaculate in his kimono. He took no interest in me, but beamed delightedly at the labor as though he had a most important welcome secret to share. Come here, the old man said in an easy vernacular. Come here and talk with me. He waved his hand slightly and the big man followed as if on a string. Planting his feet in front of him, why the hell should I talk to you? The drunk now had his back to me. The old man continued to beam at the laborer without a trace of fear or resentment. What you been drinking, he asked lightly, his eyes sparkling with interest. I've been drinking sake, the laborer bellowed back, and it's none of your goddamn business. Oh, that's wonderful, the old man said with delight. Absolutely wonderful. You see, I love sake too. Every night, me and my wife, she's 76, you know, we warm up a little bottle of sake and take it out in the garden and we sit on the old wooden bench that my grandfather's first student made for him. And we watch the sun go down and we look to see how our persimmon tree is doing. My grandfather planted the tree, you know, and we worry about whether it will recover from these ice storms we had last winter. Persimmons don't do very well after ice storms, although I must say ours has done rather better than I expected especially when you consider the poor quality of the soil. Still, it's most gratifying to watch when you take our sake and go out and enjoy our evening, even in the rain. He looked up at the laborer, eyes twinkling, happy to share this information. As he struggled to follow the intricacies of the old man's conversation, the drunk's face began to soften. His fist slowly unclenched. Yeah, he said slowly, I love persimmons too. His voice trailed off. Yes, said the old man, smiling, and I'm sure you have a wonderful wife. No, replied the laborer. My wife died. He hung his head, very gently swaying with the motion of the train. The big man began to sob. I don't got no wife. I got no home. I got no job. I don't have no money. I don't got nowhere to go. I'm so ashamed of myself. And tears rolled down his cheeks. A spasm of despair ripped through his body. Now it was my turn, standing there in my well-scrubbed youthful innocence, my make-this-world-safe-for-democracy-righteousness. I suddenly felt dirtier than he was. Just then the train arrived at my stop. The platform was packed, the crowd surged in, and as the doors opened, I maneuvered my way out, hearing the old man cluck sympathetically in the background. My, my, he said with undiminished delight. That's a very difficult predicament indeed. Sit down here, tell me about it. I turned my head for one last look and the laborer was sprawled like a sack on the seat, his head in the old man's lap. The old man looked down at him with compassion and delight, one hand stroking the filthy matted head. And as the train pulled away, I sat down on the bench. What I had wanted to do with muscle and meanness had been accomplished with a few kind words. I'd seen Aikido tried in combat, and the essence of it was love. I would have to practice the art in an entirely different spirit before I could speak about the resolution of conflict.
And just let the story sink in because the story is an invitation. It's a reminder of just what Tara was speaking about, not just within ourselves, but between ourselves and one another. To be able to take a pause, however we're able to do it, or if it happens, as it did in the story. And then as you teach people to take a pause when they're in conflict, when they're in difficulty, when they don't know what to do, to rest in loving awareness and let go of judgment. And to let go of judgment means somehow to see the vulnerability of that person in front of you, no matter what the conflict or difficulty, to instruct your students to look the poet Rilke says, ultimately, it's upon our vulnerability that we depend. And there's a beautiful story from Frank Ostaseski where he was teaching in Germany um, and a, had a big seminar. And part of the seminar was looking at how to deal with the trauma of our past and teaching about forgiveness. And toward the end of the seminar, a woman stood up in the back of the room in the crowd and said, I've been listening to you talk about forgiveness, but my father was a prisoner in the concentration camps and I can't forgive. My heart is like ice. The room went silent. All that Franco said he could do was to simply bear witness to her suffering. And then a woman on the other side of the road raised her hand and I thought, now the stories of the camps and the grief will come. She stood up and trembling began. My heart is like ice too. It feels like stone. My father was a Nazi officer who was a guard in the camp. I know that he killed people. I can't forgive him. And then these two women did the bravest thing I've ever seen. They made their way across the large conference hall of 200 people. They didn't say a word, they didn't have to. They just held each other and wept. Their actions were a clear recognition that we're not alone in our pain. For all of us, this mystery of life, the pains and joys are shared among us. So as we pause, as we teach people to pause, they can then see with new eyes to begin to see with a sense of compassion and tenderness, to open, as Tara said, bringing love to ourselves, to see the secret beauty in another, to open with a loving kindness, and to know that that quality of metta, of loving kindness, can change everything. It doesn't change it right away, and it doesn't mean you have to love the way people are acting if they're causing harm to you or others. But to be able to see that underneath all the things that they're doing um, is also their measure of pain, their struggle, the things that they've lived through, their burdens. The other thing that's beautiful when you teach people to pause and to see with the eyes of love is that when you tune into it and you invite them to look for this as a practice, you start to see gestures of goodness everywhere. As Mr. Rogers in the uh, American children's show used to say, when there were disasters and um, earthquakes and 
floods and emergencies and so forth, and they would come on the news and he would say, don't focus on the difficulties, but widen your lens and see the helpers. Because all over, when something difficult happens, people turn toward the difficulty and stream in to try to remove children from danger in the time of an earthquake, to try to pull people out, to try to help people. That this, there are a thousand acts of goodness happening every hour within a, you know, a one block radius of you. And there's a beautiful poem by a man named Laszlo Slomovich, who is a runner himself as an athlete. He says, a man is running hard to catch the bus that just left. It's picking up speed. He runs fast and pulls even and wraps on its side. And a woman by the window yells to the driver who stops and opens the accordion door. But the man does not get on. He points back to an old woman who has not run a step in a very long time, shuffling toward the bus slowly. Nor does he leave until he's helped her up both steps and then walks back slowly, still breathing hard. Toward us who are waiting for a different bus. What can a group of strangers do at a time like this? A time in its own tiny way, like when Jesse Owens roared by them all into the Olympic Stadium and everyone stood and cheered. Like this, when he returned, we all cheered. And the truth is that there's a fundamental goodness in the human heart that we can tune into underneath the vulnerability and the difficulties and the pain and anger and all those things that we see with one another. We're only on this earth for a brief time to see its magnificence and to remember that we're here together in this, in our difficulties and on our beauty. And then there starts to be a kind of common humanity. So when you teach people to pause, to let go of judgment, to see with the heart, the eyes of loving kindness, things begin to change. Do a little reflection, even as you're listening. Take a moment and reflect when have you had a judgment or a view of someone that you held very strongly that then changed radically and you could see them in a new way? And what made that happen? We all have this experience of seeing in a certain way and then realizing that it's possible to see a new passage from Aidan Nolan. The day the child realizes that all adults are imperfect, they become an adolescent. The day they forgive them, they become an adult. The day they forgive themselves, they become wise. And so this is really teaching people how to see from the heart, telling them stories, giving them tools and practices and reminding them that this is possible for them. And in a way, 
maybe the last piece is to remind them of their common humanity, that we really are all in it together. I saw an article about a visit from Dr. Sanjay Gupta, who is the CNN cable news network um, public physician, a doctor who has a show and comments from the medical perspective on many of the things that happen in the world. And he had asked to go and meditate with the Dalai Lama and got permission to do that. He thought, now, wouldn't that be cool? I get to sit in meditation with the Dalai Lama. So he flew to Dharamsala and was given instruction <coughs> about how to enter the room early in the morning because the Dalai Lama gets up at 3.30 to begin his meditation. How to be respectful in the Tibetan cultural way and to go in and sit quietly as the Dalai Lama was meditating. So you think, okay, this is a pretty cool invitation. And here's Dr. Gupta going in and he wrote, and he said, I walked into this beautiful room with all the Tibetan tankas and there seated, you know, on a cushion was the Dalai Lama, his eyes closed meditating. And there was another cushion set up next to me, next to him for me to sit. He said, I paid my respects silently and sat down. And after sitting quietly for a time with him, all of a sudden I could hear the Dalai Lama rustle. His head turned toward me. We'd been sitting together and he said, any questions? With that kind of lilt that the Dalai Lama can use. And I said, yes, this is hard. The Dalai Lama smiled and he said, mm, this is hard for me too. And we both laughed about it. When I heard this story, I thought, now what can this mean? I know the Dalai Lama a bit and I also said a friend and I also know that he knows how to meditate. He knows how to find his breath. He knows the practice of compassion. So why would it be hard for him too? But then I got quiet and I reflected that for the Dalai Lama, when he sits still, he also holds in his heart the Tibetan people, many of whom are in exile and unable to return to their country as he is unable to. He holds the destruction of the temples there and the, the oppression of the monks and nuns um, and the loss of their culture. And as a Nobel laureate and world peace figure, he's been asked to come and help in conflicts in the Middle East and in parts of Africa and elsewhere. And he has a very tender heart. And then I realized, oh, it's hard, like it is for all of us. Because when we sit, we're not just sitting in ourselves, we're also sitting with the whole world. When you teach your students, just as Tara reminded us of those steps of pausing and bringing love and attention inwardly, to ourselves. In the same way, you can begin to invite them to remember those moments when they've paused and seen with kindly eyes others who previously they had judged. Seeing the goodness or the pain that's under there with a tenderness, seeing the human vulnerability and realizing our common humanity that we're in it together. And when this happens, 
in your class, in your modeling of this as you teach, and in their lives, they begin to become empowered to move through the world with a wise heart, in a caring way, and with a deeper sense of freedom and well-being amidst all the beauty and all the difficulties. And the teachings that go back to the time of the Buddha, where he says, if it were not possible for you to release entanglement in fear, in greed, in judgment, in hatred, in ignorance, I would not teach you to do so. If the awakening of the great heart of compassion and freedom was not possible for you, I would not teach you to do so. But just because it is possible for you, I offer these teachings. And in these way you, this way you become the carrier of the lamp. You become um, the bearer of this lineage of compassion and wakefulness and inner freedom that you find in yourself, that you remind in others and that, that you give the tools to show that this is possible for them too. So with this, I'm so glad we're all in this program together for these two years. Um, it's exciting and uh, wonderful and deep and challenging and all of the things that it is. And I feel um, blessed to be a part of this web that contains all of us, so many people around the world, practicing, learning and offering these teachings. Um, in as you will be in your practicum in so many circumstances and for so many people. So thank you, Tara. Thank you all. It's a pleasure. So with that, we'll conclude today's special broadcast. Thank you, Tara and Jack, for sharing your presence and guidance with us and uh, this community. For Sounds True, I'm Steve Lassard. Thanks again. SoundsTrue.com, waking up the world.